Hi, everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan Rudzeski, here with Greg Baer, and we're the co-authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, we're talking with Lisa Ratliff, CEO of Kaboom, a national nonprofit working to end play-space inequity for good. Since its founding more than 25 years ago, Kaboom has built or improved more than 17,000 play spaces, bringing spaces that spark joy and foster a sense of belonging to nearly 12 million kids. Lisa, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. Thanks, I'm glad to be here. Excited for this conversation. Well, we're excited to play with you in our podcast sandbox today. Thank you, Lisa. So your organization, Kaboom, defines play space inequity as a sort of two-part problem. On the one hand, it's a problem of access. Nearly 70% of low-income parents across this country say there's no playground in their neighborhood. On the other hand, it's also an issue of belonging. So can you tell us and our listeners what that means? We have a real issue here. Access is really about making sure that every community has the resources necessary for people to live happy, healthy lives. So you see strong schools, access to clean water, to healthy food, to all the infrastructure that is needed. And in our world, it's great parks and spaces for play and recreation. So making sure that kids have access to these things, it's the why we exist. It's the physical representation of our love and care for each other's experience on Earth. The reality in this country is that access looks really different depending on who you are and where you live. And race is still a powerful predictor of where the resources are available to a community. It's rooted in our nation's history of racial segregation and disinvestment, and we find it unacceptable. Belonging, on the other hand, is a state of wholeness where no person feels that they're left out of a circle of concern that they have a voice and an opportunity to participate in the design of political, social, and cultural structures. For us, it's not enough to have a play space in the neighborhood if kids don't feel like they belong there or if it's not in quotes for them. And it's not enough to have a play space to go to if they don't feel fully free to be themselves. It's really important for community members to feel connected to these spaces and have a sense of true ownership. So kids should see their desires, dreams, culture, and community assets reflected in their play space. That sense of belonging can be fostered in the design. It's a way that we send subtle messages about who belongs and who doesn't, whether it's intentional or not. But you know, ultimately, we take the responsibility really seriously. We don't want to just solve the issues around inequitable access, but we want people and kids to feel fully free to be themselves in those spaces, no matter what that self looks like. Yeah, let's talk about some of the ways that play space inequity shows up in cities and communities. What exactly does it look like? It sounds like, from what you're saying, there's a lot more to it than simply not having a playground or not having a play space in a certain neighborhood. It shows up as a broader system of unequal advantage and opportunity. And play spaces are not fairly distributed in this country. And I don't think 
so many of us adults pause long enough to think about that. And the key driver is chronic disinvestment along racial lines. We see it in the data. There's an NIH study that demonstrated that 70 to 80% of BIPOC census tracts lack access to recreational facilities versus 38% in predominantly white census tracts. So we see it in access. We see it in size of parks. Parks in majority non-white neighborhoods are about half as large, and they're about five times more crowded than parks that serve majority white populations. The last point there is there's some of the soft and subtle stuff. Even when the parks are available or accessible, kids and communities of color may feel an apprehension about using them due to factors like monolingual signage or culturally exclusive rules and regulations. There's also the policing that happens in our public spaces by residents, landowners, and law enforcement. And the last thing that should ever happen to a young person trying to play is them being kicked off of that space because for whatever reason, they are being perceived as a threat as if they don't belong. We've done a lot of work in Baltimore, and I think it is a strong example of how historic racialized disinvestment leads to place-based inequity. There was a study in 2012 that really looked at the capital funding needs of Baltimore City Public School System, and it showed this shocking $2.5 billion capital budget deficit around bringing the facilities up to minimally acceptable standards. Did you say $2.5 billion? $2.5 billion. And wow. so we looked at that, so we've got a partnership with Baltimore City Public Schools, and we're working across their system to address the inequities in all of the Baltimore schools. And when we dug into the data, what we realized is at the state level, there's equitable distribution of resources. So at the state level, all the schools get about $50 million each year for modernization and renovation. But the difference in Baltimore, cut and paste into every city out there, it's the local funding that comes from the local taxes. And so even though the surrounding school systems around Baltimore City public schools serve a comparable number of students, Baltimore City receives hundreds of millions less in capital funds each year because its tax base is significantly smaller. And we all know <laughs> why. Like, that's not the fault of the people that live there. That's decades and decades of segregation, industrial decline, white flight, waves of disinvestment, and things that drove financial and political capital out of urban centers over the 20th century. And so now we're left with scarcity and limited resources that are really forcing leaders to make what seem like impossible choices about where to invest their money and particularly on the infrastructure of childhood. So people are having to make a choice between a playground or a library, a recreation center or a park. And so that all really just leads us to why we are here today and the problems that we're all trying to unpack and resolve. Lisa, Ryan and I love to talk about the work of Fred Rogers, and it was Fred Rogers who said that play is the serious work of childhood, and it's clear as we're talking with you that play has to be the serious work of adults who support kids in their lives, and the benefits of play have been well documented for decades. Play, especially free play, which is that unstructured play that's led by kids themselves, is how kids develop motor skills and social skills and stress response strategies, executive function, and so much more. So what happens when kids are systematically denied these types of opportunities for that kind of play? And how do play inequities show up as kids grow up? 
The short answer is that they're denied one of their most fundamental needs and everything suffers because of it. Their health, their happiness, their learning, their development, how they navigate and negotiate the world, how they build relationships and connection to each other in the space around them. And I think the COVID pandemic really underscores what's at stake here. We've seen over the past couple of years, so many kids miss out on gym class, being out on the play spaces or participating in rec programs, you know, the list goes on and on. And researchers are already seeing troubling health trends in youth stemming from this combination of toxic stress, social isolation, and decreased physical activity. And there's decades of research that shows how the act of play enhances brain structure and function and promotes executive functioning and the process of learning itself. But we also know what play does for our ability to navigate our relationships, ourselves, and the rest of this world. Childhood is the most crucial window of life. It is when all the foundation is getting laid and set for everything that we will become. It's when the cognitive, social, emotional, physical, trust building even, you know, all those essential skills are developed in childhood and either we get to build on them or we have to figure out ways to overcome and fight against that foundation that was built in our childhood. And at Kaboom, we talk a lot about the currency of childhood being play. I feel very strongly that around the investments that we need to be making in childhood, that they have a lifelong impact. So Kaboom has set out to end these inequities for good. And one of the ways you all do that is by building play spaces where there are none. But often these aren't your typical playgrounds. You know, a Kaboom playground is more than a swing, a slide, and a jungle gym. Can you tell us about how some of Kaboom's play spaces look different and what your process is for building them? You know, what is it that makes a Kaboom play space special? They're all different. So the kids and community members are all designing and imagining what their space looks like. And over the decades, we've gotten better and better about how we're able to respond to their hopes and dreams. Since day one, and it will never, ever change, we've had a community engagement approach, centering and creating space to have a dialogue with community where we can pull out from them. What do you want to see when your space? Kids, use your big imaginations to think about what your space needs to look like. We're able to tap into innovation that we don't have ourselves, but more importantly, it allows us to bring explicit clarity to the purpose of our work. It creates tangible expressions of how our organizational values come to life. And, you know, the things we value are partnership, humility, equity, accountability, and play. It's really how we keep the community at the center of our work. It's how we show up as equal partners, how we ensure inclusive decision making, and most importantly, how we fulfill our promises to communities that support long-term success. You know, we had to really adapt during the pandemic and how we build and create our spaces. Franklin Elementary is a school in Oakland, California, and that community came together and built the most magical space. Literally, like everybody who touched that project, their hearts and hands were on steroids. So you look around it, you know, there's a playground, there's a multi-sport court, there's an outside sensory learning garden. I encourage anyone to Google Franklin Elementary School. We should note for our listeners that there is a video on Kaboom's website of this very project. It's a really, really fun watch. 
Yeah, but it brings together everything I've been talking about because so it was a partnership with Eat, Learn, Play Foundation and CarMax Foundation, but more importantly was the life that was brought from the community members. So when you look at it, everything that I've been saying about belonging and how a kid feels and thrives in their space, the schoolyard is surrounded by images of young black and brown heroes that are so beautiful with statements of affirmation like lead voice i can do all things and for a kiddo to be able to go to school with all these beautiful caregivers and leaders and go into their play space which is so special to them look around and see one all these resources for their learning but more importantly to see themselves and see these positive affirmations on the space around them is so special we cannot underestimate what we are telling our kids about how they should feel about who they are and who they can become this is greg bear along with ryan Rudzeski. we're talking with lisa ratliff the amazing ceo of kaboom an incredible nonprofit organization working to end play space inequity for good. So Lisa, Kaboom has built lots of play spaces, in fact, more than 3,300 across the country. But it was number 3,000 back in 2017 that led Kaboom to expand its approach. Can you tell us, Lisa, about that particular build, number 3,000? Where was it and what did it prompt for you at Kaboom? Yeah, it was a big moment for us. You know, we had already been doing a lot of good work to look at how can we increase access to play spaces through our Play Everywhere work and really looking at how we can become better systems partners. But our 3000th build, we've been planning for it for a long time. It was a big special day with a community celebration, but it was a big wake up call and quite literally adjusted the trajectory of our future. And so the 3000th Bill took us back to Congress Heights in Southeast DC's Ward 8. And it's not far at all, stone's throw, from where we built our very first playground in 1995. So though we were there having this celebratory day, we looked around and not much had changed. You know, we're still building playgrounds and there's still lack of access and there's still a lot of the issues that existed when we built our first playground in 1995. And We had to put a mirror in front of us to say, how are we participating in this problem? And how can we work differently to really solve the problem and ultimately achieve our mission of ending place-based inequity for good? You know, when you look at somewhere like DC, more than a third of the kids in DC live east of the Anacostia River, which is where we were doing the work but only 20% of the city's playgrounds are in that area. And those same communities are home to the greatest concentration of physical activity deserts. So the reasons for these disparities are pretty complex and systemic. And while we recognize that Kaboom can't solve the entire problem, that we needed to be more intentional and race-informed and data-informed. And so that 3,000th build really set us on course to looking at what is it going to truly take to end place-based inequity and what are the building blocks that we need to put in place to address that problem more systemically so that we don't go back and celebrate a moment, you know, 22 years later and not made any progress. So things like assessing and mapping where inequity is and what the quality of play spaces look like and using that as our roadmap to say this is going to be where we work 
influencing and partner with federal, state, and local government, partnering with peer organizations, and then really starting to build out our capabilities to monitor and measure the outcomes of our work. So what happens because we do all this work? Let's make sure that we capture the data. And when we don't like what we see, we self-reflect and we course correct. When we do, we celebrate that and we do more of it. And lastly, us putting a megaphone on play spaces as an equity issue and making sure that we are fighting for the rights of kids that have been disinvested in and that we have got to do better providing solutions at scale. Lisa, earlier this year, Kaboom launched a major initiative called 25 and 5, and you're going big with this one, raising $250 million to accelerate Kaboom's mission in 25 high-priority places over five years. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What was the impetus? How did this come together? And what makes a place high-priority for Kaboom? We feel an overwhelming urgency in doing every single thing that we can for this generation of kids and to demonstrate that achieving place-based equity is possible. We are doing that by partnering in 25 places and we are having fun with places where it's P-L-A-Y-C-E-S. <laughs> so 25 places, but really imagine places as an entire school system where we're able to audit and assess the quality of the place spaces within that school system. So we have a good roadmap for where does the work need to get done and where is it okay? or a network of child-serving organizations like a Boys and Girls Clubs network. We are partnering with 25 places to assess and understand the scope of the problem and then to pull all the partnerships and relationships and resources, public and private, together to commit to addressing that problem at the scale that we now know it exists because we have the data, and then measuring the outcomes, which are all different depending on where we work and who we're working with and what they're prioritizing over the next five years. So I think so many of us are swimming in the same direction, but in different boats. Like we all have this energy and appetite to fix some things. How can we work together? How can we have the same vision? How can we use this data and how can we make some progress to affect this generation of kids. And we're manifesting that through the 25 and 5 initiative, which ultimately for us will be something that we scale nationally and will be how we do our work everywhere. Data informed, understand the scope of the problem, rally the resources to address it, and then hold ourselves accountable to measuring and monitoring the outcomes. And then making sure that that system and that partner has the resources to continue to maintain and grow, but then also partner with the next one so that In that path for us, we see the possibility of achieving place-based equity overall. Lisa, how can people find out more about the work you and Kaboom are doing? So go to our website. We're pushing hard on all of the media channels. I'm trying hard to get better on Twitter. Uh, Kaboom (laughs) is great on Twitter. But uh, you can go to kaboom.org and you can go to any of our social spaces. You can learn more about 25 and 5 on our website as well. There's a lot of details there. But encourage you to just reach out. There's interest forms if anyone is interested in supporting us. We're not hard to find. K-A-B-O-O-M dot O-R-G. Lisa, before we go, just one more question. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? I grew up on small things or big things. 
you know, I think where we do a lot of damage is in the small things, right? So recognize that their presence and their words and what they pour in to every single kid plants a seed with them. And that seed, it could either be destructive or it can blossom into greatness that we can't even imagine. So every eye contact, every interaction, every moment that we have to pour ourselves in the kids so that they can see beauty and confidence around them, that small gesture is something that every single one of us can do right now, today, every day, every time we see a little face. Thanks again to Lisa Ratliff, CEO of Kaboom, a national nonprofit working to end place-based inequity for good. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning, a Pittsburgh-based network of people and organizations that ignite engaging, relevant, and equitable learning practices in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. Learn more at remakelearning.org slash tomorrow.